Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello, how are you? Good, I'm back from Glasgow. So you're on a big come down then? You've never been? No, I've been to lots of festivals, but but not Glastonbury, actually. So you've been to festivals and like enjoyed it? Festivals are very tied up with work for me, so I've only ever oh, you've been working at, at the festivals. festivals. I don't think I've ever been to one for fun. Too many people, basically, for you, yeah? Yeah, maybe. Also, I like my creature comforts. I, I, I love the amount of music I can see, but I, I don't really want to sleep in a tent. I must say, the music was was really... Great. I mean, Blondie. Oh, yeah. Quite octogenarians. Uh, Blondie. Uh, Sparks, a band called Sparks. Does that ring oh, any bells? Yes, yes, I'm familiar with them. Yeah, Ron and Russell. This town isn't big enough for the both of us. And didn't Kate Blanchett come on and do a song with them? Kate Blanchett came on. I thought Lizzo was great. I thought Lana Del Rey, despite, you know, she, she sort of came on late and then the, the power got cut at midnight, but she was pretty amazingly good. I mean, Do you know, I interviewed her once. Huge hands, like shovels. Really? Yeah, that's my, my little detail for you. Um, lots of selfies. I'm a big convert. So, say you're, you're watching Lizzo. Yeah. What is the frequency with which people are coming up to you and asking for selfies? Well, I developed, I had a baseball cap, which obviously worked well for William Hague, and a <laughs> pair of sunglasses on. So that's the edge off the recognition factor. And, and then, then every time you wanted a bit of a boost to your self-esteem, you took them off. Exactly. That's basically, that's, you basically <laughs> got my number. And how about sleeping in a tent? Was it the whole family in one tent? No, just me and Justine. Oh, so you managed to um, offload them? I mean, did you just set them off into the wild at the Glastonbury or did they not More come? Or, no, no, they didn't come with us. I think, I think the basic rule of people who go to Glastonbury is don't bring your children. Mm-hmm. It's too much walking. It's too many steps. Everything's too far away. And um, how did your how did your performance go? My performance went well, actually. Um, did Did you take your acoustic guitar and do your version of "Blowing in the Wind"? No, but I wore shorts. Really? Yeah. Now, somebody said to me afterwards, "Oh, I gather you don't like wearing shorts, but you did." I don't quite know how they knew that, but it was too hot not to wear shorts. And do you think you'll be incorporating them more into your public role now in the House of Commons? Yeah. Do you think that's sort of parliamentary? Is there any country in the world where you're allowed to wear shorts? In the oh, I'm sure you chamber? can. New, New Zealand, definitely. Do you think? Yeah. Seems the type of place. Why shouldn't you be wearing shorts? I don't think it's the hill to die on, but why shouldn't you wear shorts in the House of Commons? I think it's the sort of second term issue, really. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put it into the manifesto process, but I think it's the second term issue. I mean, it's true that you know, dress senses have generally become more loose, haven't they? Yes. In fact, that has just reminded me, we had an email from Sam McAvener who said, a reason to be cheerful. I've just spent three days at the Houses of Parliament as part of their Teacher Ambassador Programme. It was a really inspirational few days and will have loads of impact in the school I work in and the students I work with. The real highlight was seeing, from afar, 
Ed Miliband. The most striking thing was he is by far the best-dressed MP. He pulls off a suit excellently, and I am massively envious of how sharp he looks. Wow. Do you think it's a case of mistaken identity? That that would explain it. I've been scratching my head a little bit. Because I'm, I'm sure there are people who perhaps spend a bit more on their suits than you do. <laughs> Maybe he's complimenting your frame there. You know that when clothes designers make clothes, they have a frame on which they look really enticing. I wonder if you have that frame. I'm going to change the subject. So did you watch lots of Glassdoor on the telly or not? So I, I, I did watch quite a lot of it, yes. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. When you see the sort of people, like, all swaying around, do you think to yourself, oh, I wish I was there? Because I always used to watch it and think, oh, I wish I was there. Here's what I don't miss, trying to, like, get my place back if I need to go for a wee. Yeah, what if you need to go to the loo? I mean, there is quite a, there, that is quite a thing, actually, making sure you time your loo stops properly. Did you hang around for Elton John? I did hang around for Elton John. He obviously had an issue with his trousers. We've all been there. He kept worrying they were going to fall down. Well, maybe he should have taken a leaf out of your book and worn shorts. Yeah, well, that's, you know, I'm obviously happy to give sartorial advice to anybody. Maybe you could work your way up to the pyramid stage next year. Maybe in a few years' time. The Legends slot on a Sunday. <laughs> that could be you. That's the career progression. Should we talk about what we're talking about this week? We should. We're talking about long-distance cycling. Um, now, we know that during the pandemic, there was this boom in cycling, including you and I, Ed. More and more people found a reason to get on the bikes, and I think we're less scared because of uh, the, the lack of traffic on the roads. And as it's summer holiday season, we wanted to give you a bit of inspiration to go cycling, as well as a bit of wanderlust. And we have some fantastic guests to talk about their cycling adventures. Mark Beaumont. Now, it was set in the bar high initially. He is the world record holder for the fastest cycle around the world. After that, we'll talk to Jill Warren, who is CEO of the European Cycling Federation, and then to Abby Melton and Lee Cooper, who have written a book uh, about how they got into long-distance cycling as beginners. So if you can't quite go in at Mark's level, Abby and Lee have got your back. Their book is called Gears for Queers. What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? Well, I sent you a photo. I went open water swimming yesterday. I was slightly confused by the photo because I thought, well, that's not Jeff. I mean, I thought it is Jeff, but I thought Jeff doesn't. Where did you do it? Did you think I'd photoshopped my face into a, a swim cap? I'd say you look quite pensive. Right. I think this was just after I got out of the water. It's more physical exertion than I'm used to. My wife has been been bugging me to, to give it a go, and the um, reservoirs near us do open water swimming. And did you sort of enjoy it? Yeah, I think I was in for about half an hour. I uh, had a little float tied around my waist, which is compulsory, but also reassuring. You've got the sort of look on your face of a sort of, I'm trying to sort of put my, like a dentist telling you that you're going to have to have three fillings. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that it shouldn't hurt too much. <laughs> <laughs> or something perhaps worse than that, actually. Okay. It might have to be root canal treatment. All right. Well, I won't be sending you any more photos then. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful uh, arose at Glastonbury, which is that I met somebody, and fortunately I didn't catch their name, but um, a, a young woman who said that she was in the process of becoming a magistrate thanks to our episode on becoming a magistrate. That episode was my idea. <laughs> well, exactly. That's what I thought. That's why I thought you'd make you cheerful. Yes. Oh, that's fantastic. She'd be. I, th I don't know how long the process takes, but she said she'd been through a year through the process. Isn't that great? Yeah. She just said she heard the episode. 
she thought it was really, really important for people from diverse backgrounds to apply to be a magistrate. She didn't even know about the process of applying for a magistrate, that you could apply to be one, and that the episode had inspired her. Oh, I hope we get some data that shows there's a huge influx of magistrate applicants after our episode. Follow her lead and become a magistrate yourself. I probably won't. Well, no, I meant for the listeners. They don't need any more middle-aged white men. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're going to begin the conversation with an actual record breaker. Is this our first record breaker, Ed? Um, yeah, I think so. Uh, Long-distance cyclist and current world record holder for the fastest cycle around the world, Mark Beaumont. Hello. Hello, hello. Hello. Is it vexing to you that record breakers is no longer on the TV, so you don't get to do that? Yeah, it's crushing. Absolutely <laughs> crushing. I'm that kid that never grew up. In my, I'm in my 40s, but I just love that idea of trying to do something faster. But you are competing. Guinness World Records, you're competing with like the world's largest tomato <laughs> and like really, really legit records like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I just in full disclosure, Mark, we did try and get the world's largest tomato on the podcast, but it wasn't available. <laughs> so He was doing Alistair yeah, Campbell's podcast. So we just, so, you know, but I mean, don't take that personally. So... Honestly, tell us about this world record then. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. It is basic facts, 18,000 miles around the planet, whether you're walking it, driving a motorbike, cycling it. Uh, I've cycled around the planet twice. So I left university with a perfectly useful economics degree and then decided to cycle around the world. And so I did that when it wasn't massively competitive. When I first spotted it, it was 276 days to go around the world. And I smashed that, took two months off it in my early 20s. Held it for a while, but then because I did it on the BBC and created a lot of media around it, lots of people started going for it. And 10 years later, by that point, I was in my mid-30s, I came back and I thought, right, let's take this to a whole other level. Can you do the Victorian fiction, the Phileas Fog? Can you actually get around the world in less than 80 days? And that's, that's when we did the 78 days, 14 hours, 40 minutes. And that's the record that still stands. So you need to go 240 miles a day every single day for two and a half months. So 240 miles a day... How many hours a day were you cycling? Right, so you've got to get out of your scratcher at half past three in the morning, on the bike at four, and you're riding 16 hours a day. You sleep for about five hours each night from about half ten till half three, up and off. And you've got to do that every single day for two and a half months. And, and what does a setback look like? What If you have a bad day and then you're doing calculations, okay, I need to ride for 19 hours tomorrow to make up for it. Well, because it's already so sleep deprived, because you're already pushing the envelope of what's humanly possible, there was nothing in the history of endurance cycling. I mean, we, 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 we took the record down by 37%. So, I mean, this was a huge leap in performance and the logistics around. I, mean, I had 40 people working on the team. 40 people? So you're in a group, you're, you've got lots of people. So I thought it might be just you on your own. You have other people cycling with you, do you? No, no, it's not like the Tour de France. You're not allowed oh. to be drafted. But I mean, logistics, media, performance. My point is... Like the skill to actually ride the bike an average of 240 miles a day is one piece of the puzzle. Sure, if you're doing a short race, it's all about the athlete. But if you're doing an 18,000 mile race, it's it's a two and a half year project to get the logistics dialed to actually be able to do something on that scale. So it's massive. So to go back to your question, Jeff, about like what does a bad day look like and how do you how do you make it back? You can't ride 19 hours a day because then you're not going to get enough sleep to recover for the next. So it's all about that long-term average. So, so if you ride 16 hours a day every single day and trust that the long-term average will take care of itself, you know, some days you'll have a headwind, other days you'll have a tailwind. I mean, clearly things go worse than, than headwinds and tailwinds, but you have to trust that if you put the right efforts in, control what you can control, the big picture will take care of itself. 
I cleared Europe in seven days. So seven countries in seven days across the wee countries of Europe and then got to Russia, got just east of Moscow and crashed, fractured my elbow, broke some teeth. And, you know, you're suddenly in a situation where is it safe to carry on? And you need to, you know, figure out how you can safely carry on and and how to make it back. Because if you give up on any given day, you're not... It'll take so long to make it back. The margins on an 80-day record are absolutely tiny. We were going to break the record, the 123 days, the old record, but to to go sub-80, everyone thought we were crazy. What do you do while you're riding? Listen to podcasts? Presumably, you're you're just pelting across wherever you are. I mean, it's pretty committing. There's such a massive focus on performance. A lot of your time is spent focused on on the detail, and you're slow, so pushed, you're so sleep-deprived. You know, the, what I call the graveyard shift, four o'clock to eight o'clock in the morning, getting through dawn. You know, by the time you finish a complete circumnavigation, you've been in your own head for 1100 hours on your own on the bike. So, yeah, you need to be good in your own company. You need to be able to think your way through the task. But but ultimately, it's as much about psychology as it is about logistics and physicality. You're not selling it to us, Mark. <laughs> well, it's not the most fun bike ride I've ever done. But isn't there something quite exciting about being the fastest human being to have ever gone around the planet? under your own steam but going around the world in less than 80 days on a bicycle is 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 that one time in your career where you can put all your cards on the table and say what am i capable of and what a privilege to do that you know as an athlete i think that's what we all dream of on the psychology of it what, what's what's going on with you when did you transition from being a kid on a bike to somebody who's hell bent on breaking records where does that come from? I guess it started pretty young. I was 11 when I said to my mum that I wanted to do Land's End John O'Groats, the length of Britain. On a bicycle? Yes. So, yeah, as an 11-year-old, I said, can I do that? And mum quite rightly pointed out, look, Mark, you've not really cycled off the farm before, so why don't you try something smaller first? I decided to cycle across Scotland, uh, which took three days. And do you know what? It wasn't just the, the adventure, the ride that I enjoyed. It was the whole planning of it and something that's yours. You know, when you're a kid... Having that sense of, do you know what? This is mine and and I'm in charge of this. And you create some identity around it. And then afterwards, I got to hand over a charity check to Princess Royal and get my story in the paper. And I think I love that whole process from dreaming it up, creating it, doing the sport of it, and then sharing the story afterwards. And in a weird way, I've been doing that ever since. Amazing. And I mean, not all of us can be you, Mark. Uh, in fact, none of us can be you, I think, is, is a kind of the conclusion I reach. Let's try and translate your escapade into what it means for all of the rest of us. I mean, talk to us about the enjoyment of cycling rather than the helter-skelter 78-day thing. I mean, in other words, I mean, what do you do on a bike when you're not trying to break the world record is what I'm really getting at. Well, I mean, I think to your assumption that it's out there and it's mad, I think for anyone to push themselves in their career, you've got to normalize it up to a point. You can't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to be the fastest person to have pedaled around the planet. I meet people all the time that I'm in awe of and I can't believe they've got to where they've got to and I can't quite understand how they do what they do. But, you know, clearly that's because I'm seeing the results. I'm seeing the output. I'm seeing the culmination of a life's passion, you know, a skill set and a confidence that they've built up over decades. People whether they're bike riders or not, can relate to it because it's not really about riding a bicycle. It's about ambition. It's about the human spirit. It's about trying to do stuff that's not been done before. I guess to go to the second part of your question, what I absolutely love about riding a bicycle is that it's not just clearly the sporting endeavour. It's everything else. Like, okay, so so in the build-up to the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow in 2014, I was uh, presenting for the BBC 
got to travel around the entire Commonwealth and interview all the athletes coming to the UK. What a privilege. Amazing. 68 nations and territories. I went toe to toe with all these athletes and tried to train with them. I learned how amazingly good they are when you try and play table tennis with the world's best or, you know, wrestle or uh, throw a javelin with the world's best. It's staggering. But I also learned that not all sports are equal and listeners might disagree on this point, but the bike gives you freedom. It gives you friendship. It gives you, you know, health and well-being. It gives you, it's literally a vehicle. Whereas if your entire passion in life's work as an athlete is how far you can throw a stick, for example, you know, the javelin, uh, it just doesn't give you the same back. So I think I'm, I guess I'm lucky that I happened upon the bicycle. As a former UK javelin champion, Mark, I, I feel extremely, <laughs> I feel extremely uh, insulted. And Jeff, as the former UK shot put champion, he feels equally insulted, don't you, Jeff? I, I take my shot put everywhere yeah. with me. I have a very close relationship with it. What's the longest you've gone in your adult life without getting on a bike? I ride my bike every week, but I ride my bike as much now with my daughters and with the family and with mates. You're talking to me in the middle of Edinburgh. I cycled into town this morning. You know, for me, it doesn't have to be about smashing records. I cycled into work this morning and a van driver opened his door on me, I'm afraid. Now, tell me, what's your favourite leisure route, Mark? Because partly what we're doing in this episode is inspiring people about European cycle routes, British cycle routes. What's the sort of route that you really love? I guess COVID in the last three years has taught me to appreciate home in a much bigger way. I've gone to gravel biking as opposed to road in a big way because there you've got one bike that will do it all. You can clearly be on the road pretty efficiently, but you can nip down the tracks and trails and basically go anywhere. I spend more time on that than I do on the road bike. I'll talk about home in Scotland. So the North Coast 500 route are from Inverness up around the top of Scotland, which I, I happen to have the record on, but I would encourage you to go a lot slower and do it over a week or 10 days. That is an absolute classic and arguably a lot more beautiful than, say, Land's End, John O'Groats. But you know what? I came up with this concept a couple of years ago when we were all stuck in lockdown uh, called Explore Your Boundaries. And Explore Your Boundaries is trying to create routes from home around where you live. So riding a bike where you wouldn't normally think of riding a bike. And, and, and actually, we created council boundary routes around all the council boundaries in Scotland. You could do this anywhere, in England, Wales, wherever you are. But it was that novel concept of see the familiar and unfamiliar ways, create routes that are on your doorstep. And when you force yourself to ride a bicycle where you wouldn't normally think to ride a bicycle, it's that childlike adventure of it, as opposed to thinking I'm on a training ride or I'm going to do the route that I always do. So check out my profiles online. There's on Komoot, which is a, a mapping platform. I've, I've mapped out loads and loads of these Explore Your Boundaries. And it's just local trails, local tracks, which you can walk them, you can take the dog, you can you know, go out on your bicycle. But it's just that mischief of actually, you can ride from your front door and do something pretty cool. Do you ride e-bikes or just pedal bikes? I don't have my own e-bike, um, but I've ridden lots of e-bikes. I more often ride my penny farthing, but that's a different conversation. You haven't really got a penny farthing, have you? I do. I do. I, I used to hold the British one-hour record, but that's probably not for beginners. <laughs> do you dress appropriately when you ride it? I've got a top hat and tails, but it's not very fast <laughs> when you're racing. When I'm racing, you're, you know, you've got a teardrop helmet and a skin suit. So that's, a, that's quite a sight on a penny farthing. <laughs> Can I ask about long distance routes? So, so something we've seen in recent years, especially during the pandemic, was a lot of towns and cities, they introduced a lot of cycle routes. Is that something that applies when you're talking about long distance? Is, is there a way of better supporting that in terms of infrastructure? I think the UK can still do better at cycling infrastructure. I'm not sure we necessarily want to go full, full Dutch 
because in Holland they've separated cyclists to the point that cyclists don't go on the roads at all. So while the cycling path infrastructure is fantastic, if you're doing training, going fast, doing long distance, then the intricacies of cycle routes through towns are often not that helpful for you know fast, long distance cycling. It's great if you're commuting to the shops or taking your kids to school. So I think there's a middle ground where we still have good tolerance on the road. So we've got road share and so that Ed doesn't get knocked off by a van every time he cycles to work. But so that we do, where appropriate, have delineation and we've got cycle networks in town so kids can cycle to school safely and whatnot. I don't think it's as bad as people make it out to be. Honestly, I've cycled to 130 countries and people always ask me to comment and sort of rubbish how bad Britain is at this. I I, I think let's focus on the positives and the culture we want to see. Do you think cycling is accessible to everybody i mean can it be perceived as you know very male are there ways we need to work on the culture of cycling to open up to as many people as possible uk cycling british cycling has uh breeze which is female only rides and ride guides my mum's joined them and absolutely loved it and it's given her the confidence to get out on her bike in her retirement there's groups like the adventure syndicate an all-female group inspiring people to get into adventure cycling and bikepacking. There's a lot of great organizations and spokeswomen in the sport. And and again, things are a lot better than they were 10 years ago. But that's not to say that there's not, not more work to be done. I think we need to break down barriers in cycling like we do in society at large to, to make sure that everyone feels like it's something for them. I think there's reasons that people from different ethnic backgrounds feel like it's not for them. perhaps around clothing and attire. So making sure that, you know, people don't feel like they they have to wear one thing or there's one way to be a cyclist. So it's so exciting to talk to you, Mark. I mean, you are genuinely a record breaker, as they would have said in my youth. And you're also really inspiring about cycling and how brilliant it can be. Mark Beaumont, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Now, to carry on the conversation, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Jill Warren, who is the CEO of the European Cyclists Federation. Jill, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about how you got into this role. And and you must be an enthusiastic cyclist, I would guess, uh, to do the job you're doing. Yes. So in my private life, I was always very passionate about cycling, whether everyday cycling or cycling holidays and weekend cycling. Uh, So I worked in big law firms for 20 years before coming to this role, including in central London and other places. And when this role opened up, I thought, oh my gosh, they have to hire me. That is the perfect job for me. Wow. And tell us about the ECF and what it does. Yeah. So we are a federation. We promote cycling as a healthy and sustainable means of transport and leisure. So we're a federation of about 70 member organizations, including Cycling UK and um, the German ADFC or the Dutch Fietzersbond. So all member-based organizations that also promote cycling. And it seems like lockdown during the pandemic had such a huge influence on cycling generally. Is that trend extended to the growth in popularity of long-distance cycling specifically? As far as we can tell, absolutely yes. Um, So during the pandemic, it was a healthy and socially distanced way to get out and get some exercise and even encouraged by many governments. And the counter data that we have suggests that between pre-pandemic 2019 and today, that the cycling levels on those uh, long-distance routes have increased by an average of 11%. Now, I want to ask you about uh, two factions, because I I believe there's a bit of a divide between bikepacking and cycle touring. Yeah, well, long-distance cycling takes so many forms. I mean, there's everything from the luxury... They organize it all for you. They transport your luggage and you really don't have to think about anything. You just kind of get on your bike and ride and follow your guide or you do it all yourself. You bike pack, you take your tent, you do wild camping um, and everything in between. There, there's really something in there for everybody. You see, I have a clear favourite out of those two and I suspect it's different to your clear favourite, Ed. It's the first. Yours is the first. Yeah. It yeah. Mine's the first too, actually. But is there something a bit less authentic about that, Jill? I would say no. I think, you know, you need to do whatever you want to do. I mean, my absolute favourite cycling tour ever was a gastronomic cycling tour in Piemonte, Italy. We had a guide and, and it was fantastic. And then I've done ones that I've self-catered, done completely on my own. Now, talk to us about the Eurovelo network, because I think this is a really important Thing and, and the ECF, uh, I think you manage it. So what is it and you know, what does it do? So the Eurovelo Cycle Route Network is a network of long-distance cycle routes that crisscross the entire continent. They go through 42 countries. It's about, when it's completed, it'll be about 93,000 kilometers. Right now, it's about two-thirds completed. And it's 17 different routes. So the north-south routes have the odd numbers, the east-west routes, the even numbers, and it's everything from routes along a river, like the, the Rhine cycle route, to, uh, you know, ones that are maybe more uh, cultural or history themed, like we've got the Iron Curtain Trail, the Eurovale of 13, and all kinds of routes. Wow. So when it says it's a cycle route, does that mean it's it's not cycling only? I mean, it could be shared with cars and so on. Is that right? Or is it, in other words, what can people expect from the Eurovelo? route in terms of, you know, safety and so on? You know, any given route can be a combination of different things. So it can be pure cycle routes. So the ones along river tend to be towpaths. 
Sometimes they're along disused railway lines. And so it's really pure cycling, um, you know, not shared with car traffic. And then sometimes they go through small villages where there's low traffic or slow traffic. So certainly, you know, we strive to make sure that, that the whole route will be safe. And, and in the development, that's absolutely what we're trying to do. And over what period has this been built and when will it be completed, Jill? So last year it had its 25th anniversary. It started off as uh, sketches on a napkin, really, in, in the 1990s. I, I think the original inspiration was probably the Danish National Cycle Route Network. Amazing. So, yeah, a group of people got together in 1995 at a meeting of National Cycle Route um, planners and that's kind of the genesis of the idea. And then in 1997, they got some EU funding to further develop this, this Eurovelo network, and it had its official launch then. When you're on it, have you got any sense of it, um, aside from it existing in a planner or on a map? Is there any infrastructure in place? Yeah, so a lot of times these routes are concurrently also national routes, at least in, in parts. And some of them will be dual signed or only Eurovelo signed, or some of them are less well signed. But that's one of the things that we work with our national partners to, to try to make sure that, that it does have that Eurovelo branding alongside whatever you know, national route it might also be. I think uh, France is probably the country that's furthest developed in terms of not only the infrastructure, but also the signage. Germany is also well-developed in the infrastructure, less so in the signage. And then you have kind of everything in between. Talk to us about people who might be thinking this is all sounding rather tremendous and who'd like to sort of plan like a summer holiday on one of these Eurovelo routes. What's your advice? Where do they go? What do they do mm -hmm. to start doing that? Yeah, well, I would invite them to go on the Eurovelo website and just kind of browse around, look at the different routes, look at the pictures on there. So that might be the first place to go. And then, you know, there's all sorts of blogs and sites where you can read about what other people have done and, and how they liked it. That might be the place to start. And then also look what routes are near me. I mean, in the UK, for example, you have four Eurovela routes that go through parts of the country. You've got the Atlantic Coast Route. You've got the North Sea Cycle Route. Now, I didn't even know that we had a Eurovelo route here. Did you Did no, you know that, no. Jeff? Over 5,000 kilometres of Eurovelo routes that go, go through the UK. Wow. And, and when you look at that website, is it easy to kind of figure out how it all joins up with, say, public transport and what accommodation you might need and the level of kit or um, fitness it would require? Yeah, we do try to uh, include that information because when people are, are trying to plan a trip, they do want to know is it near public transport? So for example, if it just chucks down rain and there might be a day when I'd like to do part of it by train instead of cycling it, or if I get tired or injured, we put that information on there. Then in terms of the, the level of difficulty, we also try to give some guidance there. So again, the, the, the routes that are along rivers tend to be the flattest and the, the easiest um, for all levels of cyclists. And then there, there are others that have some pretty high climbs and things that you might want to either have a very good e-bike or a different experience level to do. Let me ask you about being alongside a river or, or a towpath. I get a lot of pedestrian anxiety and I don't like to use my bell because I, f I feel there's something obnoxious about it. What What is good bell etiquette? Yeah, certainly just, you know, lightly using your bell. There's, there's no problem about that. It's a lightness of touch, is it? I think it's that. And also thanking the people if they get out of your way. But my experience on Eurovela routes tends to be that... You know, these purpose-built cycle paths are, are 
wide enough in, in a lot of instances that there isn't that conflict between, you know, anybody who might be hiking and, and cycling. It's funny you should say this, Jeff, because I was cycling this morning at about 7.40 and I there was a guy crossing the way in front of me. It was just a, a, a street near my house and he was wearing headphones and he just didn't seem to see that I was coming. And so I rang my bell loudly three times and someone shouted out of their window, stop ringing your bell, it's before eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and I suddenly thought to myself, maybe there's some convention that you're not supposed to ring your cycle bell before eight o'clock in the morning that I'm just unaware of. Oh, do you know anything about this, Jill? Do you know, I think every country's a little bit different. I noticed in Germany that sometimes they don't use their bell, they just kind of say Achtung, you know, right. <laughs> to, to, to get the people out of their way. So I bet that's a highway code thing, Ed, because you can't use your horn after a, a certain time at night and before a certain time in the morning. Is that you're right? supposed to flash your lights and I bet it's the same I bet the same applies to cycle bells or at least your neighbour thinks it does anyway I felt slightly I felt slightly embarrassed I think 7.30 is the cut off personally <laughs> okay yeah I agree for us here in the UK is are we okay to take bikes on the on the Eurostar can we go through the channel with our bike so during the pandemic they said no and for a couple years you couldn't take one at all on the Eurostar they've just recently announced that you can do so Again, but not an assembled bike that you could just roll right on the train and park. You've got to, you know, disassemble it, put it in a box and everything, which for me is not great. I certainly like the options better when there's actually a, a carriage where bikes can be parked or dedicated spaces uh, on trains. And that's not the case with Eurostar. <laughs> so the ferry is the best option? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. If you want to take your own bike, yes, that's the best option. Although, like I said, there's tour operators and there's options along a lot of these routes where you could take a train there and, and rent a bike at the place. That's possible too. Jill, give us what you've talked very compellingly about the Eurovelo routes. Is there a particular favorite route of yours? Yes, I have several favorites. My very favorite stretch of all in terms of being well-developed, lots of services and amenities and just an absolute delight is the Danube cycle route that's part of the Eurovelo 6 between, let's say, Passau, Germany, and then, you know, you get to the Austrian border all the way to Bratislava. So you just wow. cross all of Austria. It's wow. all flat. It's all asphalted. It's fantastic. What a great recommendation, Jill. That is my summer holiday. That sounds <laughs> yeah. great. Yeah. And you can do it. Most people do that in a week. So you can do 40 to 50 kilometer stages and do it in a week. And if you want to do it a little faster, you can do it in four stages at maybe 90 uh, kilometers yeah. a day. If we made you um, minister for cycling in our utopia, which is called the Jeffocracy, what is the first thing you would do to improve cycling and, and get more people doing it? I think infrastructure is absolutely the number one thing. If you ask people, why don't they cycle or why don't they cycle more? This feeling of safety is the number one reason that, that people will give. And it's that separated, really nice, inviting infrastructure is what, you know, gets more people on their bikes and feeling safe doing so. Well, look, Jill Warren, CEO of the European Cyclist Federation, you've been our guide, our inspiration. You've given us holiday tips. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. And by the way, Ed, I saw you at COP last year. I was oh. I was too much on my best behavior to be a fangirl and come up and ask for a selfie or something. Oh. But <laughs> it would have made his day. It's what he lives for, Jill. Well, I'm always up for a selfie. I'm, I'll see you at COP28 for a selfie, Jill. Excellent. Okay. <laughs>
And to round things off, uh, I'm joined by authors of Gears for Queers, Abby Melton and Lee Cooper. Hello. Hello. Hi. And you are living proof that a couple that cycles together stays together. Is that how it works? I mean, so far, yeah. Yeah, it, it really felt like training ground for lockdown, to be fair. And what came first? Did you bond over the love of cycling or was the love of cycling something that developed after you got together? It was definitely something that developed after we got together. I sort of stopped cycling when I was a teenager and it was only when I met Lee that I sort of started cycling again. I was living in Cambridge and obviously Cambridge is like well known for being quite a cycling city and I realised to get to work the quickest and cheapest way was going to be to start riding a bike again and I was absolutely terrified. I made Lee... um, take us only on routes that were only left turns to begin with because I couldn't bear to do right turns. I was I was so scared of traffic. But Lee had been cycling. I mean, you grew up in Cambridge. Yeah, so, so I've, I've cycled my whole life. Um, it was like the main form of transport. Everyone I knew cycled and I couldn't learn to drive because of my mental health problems. So um, even as an adult, cycling was the way I got around. Uh, so I was happy to induct Abby. But a right turn is terrifyingly. You must have. Oh no, I fully accept. It just it was kind of challenging having to work what was essentially a very straightforward route into a series of increasingly <laughs> large circles. So we kind of spiralled out. I think we added maybe twenty minutes of cycling just just through. That. I get very nervous putting an arm out to indicate. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's hard. It's especially when you're on a fully loaded touring bike. Actually, that's when it. It got even harder, so... Yeah, that ups the stakes a little bit, yeah. Well, let's come on to the touring. You wrote a book about your first long-distance cycling tour across Europe, which went from uh, Amsterdam to Montpellier. So tell us about that. How did the idea come about? So Abby, uh, when we met, was really keen to do some travelling and was kind of gently floating the idea of doing a long-distance walk. And I um, I proposed, what if we shifted walking onto two wheels? Essentially, just I didn't want to have to carry my own luggage. So I was like, the bike will do most of the work there. And we sort of reached a point, Abby was working at Lush, so just doing kind of retail stuff. I'd just finished my degree with the OU. So we had like a good window of time and we decided that we'd go for it. And Abby picked us out a route that was predominant. Well, she pitched it as this is a route that follows the Rhine River. So it will be mostly flat. This proved not to be entirely the case when we encountered like the Alps. Uh (laughs) Did you not notice the Alps on the map? I think we didn't really know what we were doing at all, to be honest. Like we'd never done anything like this. And we, I think going into it without much knowledge was probably the best way to do it. Cause I think we would have completely psyched ourselves out if we'd known what we were doing. Saying that, like it was brilliant what we did. <laughs> I think like, I think, yeah, we would have, we would have scared ourselves half to death if we'd thought too much about it. Yeah. yeah I remember calling Abby's dad up when we arrived in Switzerland and we were like, it's, it's really pretty, but oh my God, it's so hilly. And he was like, what? And I was like, yeah, it's just like mad hills everywhere. And he was like, this is ridiculous. Like Switzerland is hilly. <laughs> was there this naivety going into it or did you have concerns before you uh, set out on that trip? So I think, we were anxious about everything. Like we're naturally quite anxious people. So I think, uh, yeah, we we found things to worry about. I think one of our like first worries was really around like getting lost and navigating on bikes. And that was actually a really well-founded fear because on our first ride, I managed to take us like 50 kilometers down the Ron Canal before we <laughs> noticed. And we ended up um, heading towards Utrecht by accident and having to to completely alter our route. But we found our feet eventually, and I think that was the thing. There was there were lots of things that we were worried about, many of them rightly so, but 
we learned as we went and kind of enjoyed the process of figuring out as we went along. Yeah. Tell us some more about the enjoyment then. What what were the highlights of it? I think just seeing so much of a country for me was like the major highlight of it and, and exploring places that I didn't even know existed. I think on the first tour we got to the Upper Rhine Valley and I'd never heard of it before um, and it was just the most beautiful place I think I've ever, ever cycled through. And I think something about like transporting yourself under your own steam there's something really satisfying about it especially when you get to a campsite at the end of the day and you get to finally relax and some of the campsites had pools so it was like it was incredibly incredibly satisfying but we had lots of lots of really really brilliant moments yeah I think for me like those moments in campsites where you kind of roll in and often a lot of the routes that we did they were quite popular with other cycle tourers so you'd have sort of this group of people that you'd you'd leave behind at the first camps or more likely we were still cooking breakfast while they were leaving and we'd kind of like leave maybe two hours later and then we'd catch up with them at the next campsite and you'd swap maps and stories and I think like those interactions with people and we used a, a, a site called Warm Showers which is basically couch surfing but for for cyclists for cycle tourers to find places to stay in cities especially where there weren't necessarily great places to camp and those interactions with people there getting to chat being fed food chatting with other cyclists um, people offering bike maintenance advice all of those moments I think really stand out for me as, as some of the highlights of cycle touring. I'll tell you what I'm enjoying about this is if I think of that type of long distance bike riding, I think you have to be a type that you have to be fully immersed in it and part of that community and have all the kit and didn't even really think about the route into it. Do you, do you feel that you became that thing or do you still live slightly outside of it? I think we definitely live outside of it. I don't think we'll ever be proper cycle tourers. I think when we heard about um, the other guests on the podcast, we were like, oh my God, like we're not, we're not proper enough. Like we don't know what we're doing. But this is great for people who don't feel that they would ever be proper enough because you know, <laughs> I, I was um, listening to Mark and it sounded in- incredible, but I also thought, oh, I, I, I could never do anything like that. That's not for me. But when I listened to the, the two of you talk, I think um, maybe that is a holiday that lies in my future somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes partly from like our approach to cycling is like we're not leisure cyclists, we're not athletes, we're not into cycling as sport. Like we cycle to and from the pub and to and from work. And then this trip was just a natural extension of that. We wanted to get from A to B in Europe and have fun doing it. So why wouldn't we do it on our bikes? I think it it took a long time to feel like we could call ourselves cyclists in a way because we we very much felt outside of, of what you're describing, sort of the sort of cycle tourer who does these amazing trips and we were definitely comparing ourselves to that a lot of the time but we sort of got to a point where we felt very comfortable where we were and what we were doing and we really wanted with the book especially to encourage other people to feel like actually you know I haven't been on a bike in the past 10 years and I'm not very fit but you you can just kind of do it and it is going to be really enjoyable um especially if you don't push yourself too hard to begin with or get lost going 50 kilometers in the wrong way. It is something that's difficult, but I don't think there's as many barriers to it as people think. Like the cycle routes in Europe, especially if you follow the Eurovelos, are absolutely fantastic. You know, it's cycle path the whole way. So it's very different from cycling in a lot of the UK where you're sort of thrown onto roads a lot of the time. So it feels a lot a lot safer and a lot easier. And yeah, I was I was completely unfit. I'd never cycled more than an hour and it just my fitness built as I cycled and that was one of the things I really enjoyed about it too. Does it become this whole other thing when you're lugging kit around? It's a lot to begin with. Um, <laughs> the 
bikes are incredibly heavy and very unwieldy yeah. to begin with. There's like a classic video of us leaving for this first tour and we'd had like a garden party the night before to say bye to everyone and we packed all of our stuff onto the bikes the next morning and then realised we'd never actually ridden them with all the stuff <laughs> on it. We'd like tried out different confidence. We'd never actually sat on the bike saddle and like pedaled. And uh, yeah, it's a whole other thing. You're really uh, trying to like control a very unwieldy, very heavy bike. So yeah, that was a that was a relatively steep learning curve. We also took way way too much stuff on that first tour. We we thought we needed the kitchen sink, and I think it was about some sort of like magical thinking to protect ourselves from whatever was coming. But like we didn't need half of the stuff we ended up taking. <laughs> so oh, this is this is good then. So what what do you need? You know what what are the essentials? Clothes you're comfortable in. I think padded cycling shorts are incredibly useful when you're doing long days in the saddle. We camped, so all of the stuff, kind of cooking and stuff, but we didn't have anything specific. A lot of our camping stuff was just scavenged from like our parents' old stuff, stuff friends would lend us, like nothing particularly specialised. I think the other essential thing is like panniers to put that stuff in so you can transport it on the bike we bought specific panniers for the trip because we didn't have any and we wanted kind of waterproof ones with a roll top uh, and those worked really well for us and we use them on our second tour we use them day to day just for commuting but we've got friends who just use like your kind of standard cheap panniers with plastic bags or with dry bags in to keep stuff waterproof yeah i think the bike as well was the other sort of main concern like what sort of bike should we go for but we Everything we read about it basically said that obviously make sure you've ridden the bike a fair amount so you know that you're comfortable on it. And the other thing that we considered was getting steel framed bikes, because if they do break at all, you can technically weld them back together. And we did have to weld my pannier rack back onto my bike on the second tour in Venice, which was a lot of fun trying to get that organised. Wow. Uh, but they're also very strong. And I think when you're when you're cycling, you need something that's going to be able to carry the weight of you and the panny bags, which was a big consideration for me because I, I weigh quite a lot. So we needed something that was able to, to carry me and not break. So Just to ask a stupid question here, you didn't have welding kit with you. You didn't get all flash dancers. And- <laughs> Oh, no, no. We we found the most amazing, like, very old school uh, Italian welder. Um, Lee cycled the bike over and was like, can you help? And he did it all without any <laughs> protective equipment. And it was terrifying. And we were just like, but he did the job amazingly. So. What was the most useless thing you took with you? I think the ukulele, probably <laughs> not oh. useful. <laughs> Did it come out at all on the camp around the campfire? I did play it on rainy on rainy days, but I mean it's not it's it's a very like I think it's probably the most annoying instrument. So I think it didn't necessarily endear me to our other campers. <laughs> what put the most strain on your relationship? Needing to weld the bike frame or or the ukulele? <laughs> I think it was my endless drumming because I also only knew like three right. tunes. I think Abby was sick of them <laughs> by the end of it. <laughs> I guess this ties in with what I was saying before about finding it intimidating. But if you think about the type of person that you typically would imagine to be a cyclist, perhaps an athletic looking white man. That is a, a stereotype. In, in your experience of being on these journeys, on these trips, doing these cycle holidays, it's, is that changing? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the view of cycling uh, or cycling as it's portrayed is often dominated by thin white men. But I think cycling itself isn't. Uh, I think the majority of people who cycle, who actually like use their bikes to get around, they're people from all different 
contacts who are riding their bikes like by choice or by necessity. And I think what's changing in some places more than others is the kind of more like the representation of different types of cycling and who we put at the center of like discussions around cycling and whose needs are prioritized when we're talking about uh, like what cycling infrastructure needs to go in place or what we're offering people. We were taking these incredibly long distance routes that cut across Europe that are pitched and and we went on because they were sold for kind of like cycle tours. But the people we encountered were just people who lived around them, using them every day, like people riding to and from the shops, loads of kids, like older people, kind of everyone out on their bikes on these on these accessible paths. I think cycling has always been something that has been done by like a wide diversity of people and I think now it's that representation is catching up to that and I definitely didn't feel myself represented to begin with and I think I'm now seeing like a lot more um cyclists who look like me who are fatter and there's a real push amongst brands for example to get clothing out that fits fatter cycle tourers as well or cyclists in general um when we first went on this tour the reason I didn't have padded shorts is because I couldn't find a single pair that fitted me it was and it was very painful (laughs) likely says we're, we're everywhere it's just we're not necessarily represented by media and just to end on an optimistic note give us a reason to enjoy long distance cycling what is brilliant about it you get to experience a country in a completely different way to if you're just flying into a city and exploring it and then flying out again you get to see so much more of the place you get to meet loads of amazing people Everyone wants to talk to you because you're on a a cycle touring bike. They want to know where you've come from. They want to know where you're going. So you get these amazing conversations. You get to enjoy the fact that you're like, you're doing it yourself. So it feels like an adventure and it feels like you're just pushing yourself to do something new and exciting. And I think you, you feel very confident and competent in what you're doing by the end of it. Yeah, I think for me, it's that feeling like I remember standing on the beach in Montpellier, looking out over the Med and thinking we've just joined up like the North Sea and the Med all under our own steam. And I think like that gave me such a sense of kind of confidence and autonomy that just felt really like really special. But leave the ukulele at home. Yeah, (laughs) get the ukulele. No one needs one on a cycle tour. Definitely. (laughs) Uh, Abby, Lee, thank you so much for talking to us. The book is Gears for Queers. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. I must say, I do love these episodes, which are less about kind of crunchy policy and more about, you know, fantastic cycle rides. Do you know what I mean? Yes, it's living a good life, isn't it? Yeah. I just found it all quite just really inspiring in sort of different ways. You're just talking to Jill about the Euro Velo routes and, you know, imagining what I think it was the, the Danube route. Is that the one that she was talking about? And I'll tell you what was a revelation to me that you can do long distance cycling and stay on the flat. Because, yeah. of course, if you're going along a, a river, it's it's largely going to be a flat. All, although uh, Lee and Abby did say they ran into some problems with that in the Alps. So you, you've got to watch out for Alps when They're you're climbing They're mountainous, route. the Alps. They, they are, yes, yeah. I mean, it's something very, well, it's something quite inspiring about it, isn't there? Yeah, when, when you talk to people like Mark, it's always like really inspiring on a human capability and ambition and setting goals that that is that's always incredible but actually you know i was in a way more inspired talking to lee and abby because i've got it in my head as so often was is the case with anything to do with physical exertion oh i i couldn't do that and um the the fact that they went in as a couple of novices and now it's become such a huge part of their lives is inspiring. It's more inclusive than perhaps it was in the past. Yeah. 
I will say Mark's achievement, I was telling my kids about it. I mean, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? It is. I mean, I can't get into that mindset myself. I mean, 240 miles a day. Yeah. I mean, it just seems I struggle with sort of, you know, seven or eight kilometres to work. I mean, it's like, it just seems extraordinary, doesn't it? It was unbelievable. So has it inspired you for your, a cycling holiday? Do you think a, a cycling holiday might be a sort of possibility for you? I think somewhere down the line, actually, when Gene's a bit bigger, he, he likes riding a bike. We we got as far as Victoria Park in London the other week. So, you know, start small and then maybe round the world next year. Yeah, maybe when I retire, I'll do the round the world thing. I think I'll, I think I'll find it hard to beat 78 days, don't you think? <sighs> That's a real defeatist attitude, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> what age are you planning on retiring at, by the way? I don't know. But look, let's take the sort of, the leisure part of this out, you know, it doesn't need to be achievement. It can be just having a fun time, yeah? And then Mark was saying that too. Yes, absolutely. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa, ho, ho, we're in the outro, ho, ho. Can I do a shameless plug for something? Yeah. So I have a new podcast launching next week. That is exciting. Yes. Tell us about the podcast. In, in a way, it's a continuation of the succession one we were doing. This is my wife, Sarah, and I, which was called Fire Crotch and Normcore, which is a little in-joke from succession. But this is going to be about TV more generally. So it's called Fire Crotch and Normcore, They Like to Watch. And it's a podcast that you know, every time you're making small talk with someone, you say, what are you watching at the moment? What's good? It's a podcast that hopefully answers that question, but we've, we've got excellent taste, so you can trust our recommendations more than you yeah. can other people. Sounds great. Who, who gave you the idea for that podcast, Jeff? Well, I'll be honest, Ed, Ed has been saying for a while, Ed has been saying for a while, oh, you should do this as a podcast. And I um and said, no, I don't, I don't thought, think Here's so. Here's the man with the make-your-own-sandwich shop yeah. idea. Here's the man with the fruit confectionery machine idea. Yes, yes. I really don't yes, want to take his yeah. advice. Ed, Ed has been saying that for a couple of years. Then during the Succession podcast, Sarah's agent and Sarah were saying, this is what you should do. And I was going, oh, I just don't think it's a good idea. I don't, I don't think we should do that. Then, strange Strangely, uh, Jesse, Jesse Armstrong, the creator of Succession, suggested the same thing. And all of a sudden, I was um, much more open to the idea. <laughs> I mean, look, at least at least you're honest enough to sort of, you know, fess up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm terribly shallow. Yes, I'll admit it. Oh, that's why I was asking. Good old Jesse Armstrong. He obviously has brilliant ideas. I mean, he has got an idea for a vending machine that I don't like so, so much. So, origi- so original. I mean, it's a shame nobody else. Jim, I didn't think of it, uh, Jesse's yeah. idea. Maybe you should pitch a major HBO drama, Ed. Yeah, maybe I should. Uh, right, should we thank our guests, Jeff? We should. Mark Beaumont, Jill Warren, Abby Melton and Lee Cooper. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer. She is supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish, very much in his honeymoon period. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composer music. James Deacon made our idents and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.